Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm delighted to say I'm here with Dr. Christopher D. Lee. Uh, he is the author of this book. It's Performance Conversations, How to Use Questions to Coach Employees, Improve Productivity, and Boost Confidence Without Appraisals. Christopher, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, we, were, we were saying before you came on, it's important to get that D in, right? There's, uh, a lot you of have to have that D because, uh, as you know, Christopher Lee is a fairly you know, famous and common name. Uh, I was sharing that uh, I, I've met myself five Christopher Lees in my life. And I guess six now since the gent who came to give me an estimate to do my lawn care last week introduced himself as Christopher Lee as well. So you can imagine how important that little D, you know, is sometimes. <laughs> right. As far as I'm concerned, you are my favorite Christopher Lee. All right. Uh, I'll take it. And uh, you were also 25 years as the Chief Human Resources Officer at uh, William and Mary. And you were just saying that's the only university in the States with uh, started with the Royal Charter. Absolutely. Established in 1693, second oldest in America, second to Harvard and by Royal Charter. And, you know, we, we like to remind people that we're 328 years young. And uh, that's a part of the, you know, the, the kind of folklore of the place. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wonderful. And uh, before before we dive in, and we would definitely uh, devote the, most of our conversation to this this topic, performance conversations, just can you give people a little of your background? Like, where did you grow up? Like, where did all this, yeah. did this the origins of your interest in these human yeah, topics yeah. start? Yeah, so, you know, I started my career, I was a Marine officer, and I did um, 13, uh, you know, eight years active, 13 years in the in the reserves. Uh, obviously, uh, I, I think the history of performance uh, appraisals as, the, as we know them really started around World War II. Uh, where army officers were you know, being evaluated by some standard sort of system. So I'll give you that as a context because I remember one of my early kind of uh, you know experiences was in relation to getting a glowing feedback you know sort of uh, evaluation from a from a, a captain. I was a lieutenant, and he says, "Hey man, you did a great job according to the standards the Marine Corps gives me to evaluate you, but I have some serious concerns about your performance." All right, and uh, and I remember thinking. I'm no dummy. This is the standard. This is what I was performing to, right? Reality is negotiable. You know what I'm saying? So, because I'm going to get promoted based upon this. You know, so I did that, you know, for, for a number of years. And then since then, I've been in higher education. I've been a chief HR officer for five different colleges and universities uh, within the states, you know, different parts of, uh, uh, you know, the states and, and different kinds of institutions. You know, we have a variety of um, uh, uh, post secondary institutions in America. Uh, you know, two year and four year and different kind of varieties within those, which is a little different internationally, I know. And so I've been at five different kinds of uh, colleges or universities. Uh, as an example, a private liberal arts college, which is about 2000 students up in Maine. Uh, here in Virginia, I was the chief HR officer of a college system, which is 23 two year institutions. And now at William and Mary, which, of course, as you know, it's the second, you know, oldest university uh, you know, in America. We have to tell you the story, right? I mean, this is part of, you know, yes. uh, yeah. part of the requirement. So. Right, right. But I'm interested uh, in the Marine part. Did you, did you always grow up wanting to be a soldier? You know, not, not really. I think I was more attracted to the, the challenge, right? I mean, you know, I had a brother who decided to join the Marine Corps as an enlisted man. I was in college and he was, you know, kind of giving me all the hype and, uh, you know, the physical challenge of, you know, the extremes of, you know, uh, testing oneself. Um, mm. Human performance has always been a part of my DNA. And that kind of plays out in the book, actually. Uh, and so I was like, man, you know, it's the ultimate test, right? You know, I mean, physically, intellectually, just a challenge. And I used to tell people that I really was more interested in training to be a Marine than I <laughs> wanted to be a Marine. <laughs> you know? so, so I guess that kind of parlayed itself into a reserve career, right? Because I had many other interests. And right. you know, while I enjoyed that, that was not what, you know, my focus necessarily was solely on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the training to get into various, like, especially the elite regiments and so on, it's become law, hasn't it? The, and I, yeah, there's something in us, isn't it? That could, could I get through? Could I make it through? Like Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, hey, that's what you do when you're 19. Right. I mean, you know, right. yeah. you know, you know, there's a little hubris involved and, uh, you know, and that whole exercise. Right. 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 <laughs> yeah. We have uh, a TV show here in the UK, um, which is modeled on the SAS selection, you know, uh, regime. Right. And uh, so, so people yes. just try their hand going through it. And it's immensely popular, like really, really popular show. I think there's something. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely great fascination but you obviously made it through the training and became a marine <laughs> yes so. yes 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 so uh you you have to do it when you're young is all i have to say right because uh physically is one thing but you know intellectually emotionally is, is still another i mean because you you ask yourself a question often which is why am i doing this right mm. and, and you'll appreciate this in officer candidate school for the marine corps a british royal marine you know, kind of senior, you know, non-commissioned officer is the training officer for physical fitness, right? right? So it's been a tradition for I don't know how many years, but so, you know, this gentleman, he's just, he's just use all these, um, you know, British sayings to us and say, hey, hey, man, you're getting paid to do this, right? Like, and you're going, am I being paid to do this? Why am I doing this, right? You know, and he goes, it's easy as knit. And he was like, um, he was not the most visually fit person, Right. right. <laughs> That's right. He, he probably had an extra 10 or 15 pounds for people who are, you know, in Marines, one of the sayings is uh, lean and mean. So, I mean, I can right. recall I was 6'2, 185, and had a 15 inch collar. I don't have a 15 inch collar today. I was reminded of that, right? Because uh, lean. And, and he, he, you look at him and go, like, you know, yeah, yeah, whatever he would work us into the dirt. Right. And it's like, wow. You know, so uh, I'll never forget that. Don't, don't judge a person by the way they look, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? how fit they are. And he, he embarrassed us 20 years older and, and made all of us, you know, uh, weep, you know, so. Right. 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 No. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess, uh, I guess people learn. Well, that was interesting because I got a friend who's in the, in the reserves here in the UK and he, yeah, he finds that a lot of the veterans sometimes, that, you know, on paper they're not as physically fit, but when it comes to any of the endurance stuff, they've they're often superior uh, because of that. They've got the mental game, and you quite often see that in the kind of the very long distance events. It tends to be the older guys often who win them, don't they? Those very long endurance events. Absolutely, absolutely. It, it takes the whole body, body and mind, absolutely, to focus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what were you studying out of interest before you went? It, was it related to? to what you're now doing? No, I mean, undergraduate, I was uh, a political science major. I had the idea at the time I wanted to be an attorney. And, uh, you know, somewhere along the way, uh, like anyone else, I was taking graduate level courses and a professor pulled me aside and said, hey, you know, what do you plan to do? And I was like, yeah, I plan to leave, you know, active service and become a lawyer. And he said, oh, you want to be a doctor. You don't want to be a lawyer. Let me explain to you why, right? And so he changed my kind of focus because I was taking graduate human resources courses, primarily because they were available, you know, with my, you know, military benefits. And I wanted to keep my ac academic skills kind of honed while I served. I was going to do my, my, my four-year obligation and move on because I had planned to go to law school. And so that kind of changed my, you know, focus uh, because, you know, he, you know, he pulled me aside and said I was doing, you know, as well as anyone in the class and seemed to be very engaged and that that was not, you know, a smart way to go. And and so, you know, like many people, the well-placed mentor or teacher or, you know, whomever kind of guides your way. And I was fortunate to have, you know, interacted with this gentleman. Yeah. And you obviously trusted him. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that, well, we'll probably get onto that, but when it comes to coaching, that's, well, my, my experience of being a coachee and a coach, it's, it's so much of it is based on, whether the coachee is willing to to trust, right? Just to uh, take the guidance without questioning. Uh, yeah, yeah. And what did you get your doctorate in then? Uh, human resources, right? Oh, okay. Uh, so, yeah. So, so masters, masters, and doctorate in human resource management and human resource development, kind of two sides of the same coin. Yeah. 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 Okay. And so that that launched you into a into a career within HR and. And then when did the when did the genesis what was the genesis for the book itself? Yeah. So as I as I kind of weave toward that, um in the Marine Corps, 
I took assignments that were HR related since I established that, you know, position and eventually became an officer recruiter uh, in the Marine Corps. Uh, You were placed out into, you know, uh, some community. I I was responsible for officer recruiting in parts of Alabama, Georgia and Tennessee. And then that helped parlay into higher education within higher education, like any other organization. Right. And you got your performance management systems. I went to a college up in Maine called Bates College, small liberal arts college. And the the president there had uh, established a routine to do performance appraisals, which hadn't been done in the previous 50 years. Right. It was one of those colleges is a great institution, historic. They really have an egalitarian way of seeing the world. But leaders wanted to be able to manage performance more effectively. And, you know, against the culture, they established this thing called a conversations document, which was really just an opportunity to sit down a couple times a year and talk about work. It went okay, but not as well as it could because the, you know, the conception was great. The execution was less so, but it was a movement in the right direction. When I saw it, you know, uh, initially in 1999, intuitively, I said, this is great. Uh, However, again, the implementation didn't go as well. I thought it had leapfrogged, you know, the kind of conventional wisdom and went to something different. So as a new HR manager, I, uh, you know, I kind of worked within it and and tried to refine it. Uh, But the important thing is I remember my interview day and a half dozen or more people asked me, what did I think about that process? And I learned by the end of the day not to have an opinion because there were people who loved it and people who hated it. So I had to do a big presentation because that's what you do to an HR manager because you serve everyone, do a presentation before, you know, 50 or 100 people or whatever. So I didn't have an opinion and I said, hey, you know, you know, good systems, bad systems is all about, you know, the culture, the, the conditions and, and the implementation. So obviously that was the right answer. Later, I refined the process. It got better. Then we got a new president. <laughs> She she wanted to do things the other way around. And it's not popular to tell your CEO no. And so if you tell your CEO oh, no, you probably should have a good reason. So I started the process of understanding why what we were doing was really a good idea and the conventional way was less good. And I've been studying it since then. And that's probably been around since 2002. And what I learned was very important. You know, read everything I can get my hands on, dozens and dozens of books, articles, articles, et cetera, et cetera. And what they said was this. Oh, performance appraisals are great. However, when you're doing them, be aware of this. This is a concern. This is possible. Here's some potential shortcomings. And if you put them all together, that created in the original book I wrote in 2006, you know, uh, uh, first version of two, uh, performance conversations uh, called performance conversations and alternative to appraisals was the 15 fallacies of appraisal because they cannot work because the conception of them is incorrect. For example, they say it's performance management, but you cannot manage past performance, right? You know, it's like you're looking backwards, you're judging people, you're rating people, and we assume that that one instrument is going to manage all performance. That's a fallacy. We assume that managers see and know all. That is not true. We'll assume managers have solid judgment, that they don't discriminate, that they aren't unfair. You know, uh, they, they don't suffer from basic human frailties and missing things and, and things of that sort. So there's a whole set of reasons why they can never work as purportedly designed. And then I set about to, to decide what to do uh, instead. So that was the first book. The new book, you know, 10, 12, 15 years later is essentially 2.0, where we use the, the, the original method and two additional methods to, that have been refined you know, over a period of time. So that's kind of how I, I, I move into it. It was more serendipitous, but a lot of study and a lot of interest in evaluation. But really at the core of what I'm interested in is human performance, right? Yeah. Is how to make people better. And so things kind of evolve and, you know, over a period of time. Right, right. Well, it's fascinating to hear that because I've... I've sort of all, I always had this view that performance appraisals, the formless performance appraisals are, are flawed. And, you know, it was music to my ears when a lot of the big firms, probably about, what is it, five, six years ago, maybe a bit further. 2016, yeah. 
yeah started to say okay we're dropping them and i was like oh, finally you know some, 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 some of these firms have seen the light but what's interesting to me hearing you speak is actually originally they were a step in the right direction right because presumably it sounds like before that there were many institutions who had nothing like that at all there were no conversations yes. about performance so you know i guess be careful we have to be careful not to denigrate uh, the past in that sense yeah exactly yeah I mean, it's an attempt to manage within a system in an organizational sort of structure i think that was you know the original uh but the intent and the, and the implementation that's the challenge right about how and Many people have disliked them because of how they made uh, uh, people feel. I think that's the key, right? People, uh, the, the ideas weren't good. So, for example, at Bates College, uh, I had an administrative assistant. She was amazing. Her name was Lucy, best, you know, uh, admin I've ever had. My first uh, appraisal, you know, or conversation with her, uh, uh, she, she came in with a handkerchief in her hand, right? I didn't know why. Right. So we know we had a conversation. Eventually she started crying okay? <laughs> you know, because I was giving her critical feedback. Right. Uh, and and, uh, and then the, the next year. So that would be probably, you know, 2000, uh, you know, uh, one or so. Uh, same thing. She came in with her handkerchief. Right? So we, we've had 100 meetings and two times. You've come in with the handkerchief because she planned to cry and any negative feedback. She cried. Now, we're talking about negative feedback to a person who's an A to A-plus performer. But think about the idea, the psychology of it. Hey, hey, Richard, we're going to get together on Thursday, and I'm going to say things that are not nice or that things that you don't want to hear. Let's plan for that. Yeah. Okay. And so the person ruminates for days, weeks, or whatever, and it's just an artificial environment that they created. And I think that's part of why they've been ineffective. Right, right. And I think, I think, I think back to my own experience of them. And, you know, I joined Arthur Anderson as was right straight out of university. And, and we had yes. that system like meets expectations, um, whatever it does not meet like, above, above expectations and they're substantially right. above expectations. And then, yes, as you say, yeah, it does not meet. And so, on. and, so, and I, I was like super competent. You know, talked about being a young man. I was like super comp- competitive. And of course it was linked to the bonus. And I would scan through like all of the expectations, you know, the, all, the, all the guidelines for the grading at the different levels. And it was a forced bell curve. So uh, to a degree, right? Not like as full on as say GE, but, and I'd, I'd like regularly get like the E, the exceed, the top grade, basically, you know, the top yes. grade, whatever it was. Um, I think, yeah, it was like exceeds expectations. It was like meets expectations above expectations. And, and then I'd get my bonus and I'd feel all pumped about it. But I totally flamed out of that career. Like I was like workaholic, alcoholic, you know, all the rest of it. Now, a lot of all of those problems were like not related to the firm. Obviously, they were, you know, deeper set. But what's interesting to me now, I reflect on it, is that they were, you know, they were really good at forcing me into these like certain behaviors that they wanted. But they totally missed the fact that I was on a trajectory to completely flame out of the firm, which I then did. Um, Yes. Because they weren't digging any deeper than no. is he is he before is he exhibiting the behaviours that we want? And I was like an active um, binge alcoholic during that period. That was totally yeah. missed. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. basically, I was so so. You know, I don't want to sort of turn this into like um, a rant suggesting that firms take on you know the entirety of the responsibility for you know all aspects of a human in their charge, but. I do think it's interesting that none of those other issues were picked up at all, you know, because on paper, I was a star performer. Right. Well, that's because most traditional systems focus on outcomes only. Mm. Uh, And performance is three parts of a whole. It's efforts, outcomes and behaviors, because efforts are the building blocks to good outcomes. It is the methods, the know how, you know, following the systems. It's the way you work to do good. Uh, the one example is that good economies make bad salespeople look good. But when the economy goes south, you have to know how to sell. So you have yeah. to have the right kinds of, you know, uh, work ethic and, and things of that sort and following the methods and systems and, and, and uh, working safely, as an example. Then outcomes are easy. And then behaviors. Behaviors are teamwork, getting along with others, inclusivity. 
right? It's how you interact with others to help others be better, right? You know, and so it's efforts, outcomes, and behaviors. Traditional systems were really heavy on uh, on uh, outcomes. Sometimes they would include behaviors, but not as often. Most often they miss, you know, efforts. And behaviors are just as important because if you are a superstar performer and you make the team worse because you're, you know, a bad actor, right? That doesn't help the organization. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's efforts, outcomes, and behaviors. The, the problem is the list of potential potential efforts, outcomes, and behaviors are exhausted. And what organizations did was pick 10, pick 12, you know, pick 25, whatever. And you can never get it all on a sheet of music, right? It's just not, you can't get it all right there, right on one sheet. And so that was part of the thing. As you said, you, you looked at the list. So like, I'm no dummy here. You said, do these 10 things, you get more money. Okay. But what about the other 12 or the other five or the things that are more important? or the goals, or whatever the case may be, performance is dynamic. Last year, everyone's goals blew up in in, in March, April, May, right? So how do we account for all of that? And that is to look holistically and not try to pre-identify everything that's important. That's a really important point. And and some of the executives we talk to as part of the work we do as a firm have said that they've had to let certain managers and leaders go over the course of this pandemic because suddenly the leadership qualities that they needed and that was a lot lot stronger on the empathy and, and care for how people are getting on at home and you know, that that aspect of leadership just wasn't there for a lot of managers and leaders. And so they they oh, wow. got it they didn't make the cut over the course of the pandemic, which I thought was well, yeah, interesting. You're right on. You said that organizations should necessarily be, you know, uh, responsible for everything about it, uh, the people in their charge. I would, I would beg to differ. Right? Oh, because, interesting. <laughs> yes, okay. because, you know, again, it could be my orientation to the world having been a, a, a Marine officer, right? That was a saying that there was no such thing as a bad Marine. Marines by their nature are elite. And so, there are bad Marine officers, but there are no bad Marines. So if there was a Marine in your charge who wasn't performing well, that's a leadership challenge. That's a leadership opportunity. You had to care for that person, you know, uh, you know, 24-7. Now, of course, that's not the way life is in the real world. But to a degree, the sentiment is correct because you cannot separate the performer from the person. Right. When that yeah. employee walks into the door in the morning, they don't leave their humanity at home. Right? They don't leave who they are, their personality, you know, their dispositions, their problems, their concerns, their gifts. All of that comes with them. And we should have some concern about their overall well-being. And as a matter of fact, if we segue to the other end of the spectrum, as you know, the literature is replete with everything about engagement. Engagement, engagement, engagement. You talked about it on one of your previous podcasts. Cast about only seven, you know, seventy-five percent aren't engaged. Yeah. Well, they aren't engaged is because we're concerned about the performer, not the person. For people to uh, give you their very best, there's a couple of things that need to happen. One of them, they have to feel like it's reciprocated, and the word I use often is that they have to believe you care. Right? They have to believe the organization cares for them because if I'm going to show you some love. I'm hopeful that you would show me some also. It's just the regenerative nature of how relationships work. And as a relationship with with the organization, using the layman's definition of engagement as discretionary effort, right? I I have a mortgage. I got to work. And there's a social contract. You do this job. You get this this amount of remuneration. You you do these kind of things or, or whatever. Beyond the requirements, that is discretionary effort to seek excellence, to continuously approve or whatever. That is engagement. Now, who are you going to perform for? The person who is just checking the blocks, who really doesn't know your spouse's name, uh, and they're only concerned about what you're going to do next for them or the firm. That's a 20th century orientation to the world. That is a boss. In the 21st century, we need coaches. We, right? The old model was the overseer, the boss, the supervisor who's going to draw out of you good performance because you're lazy, right? And it's theory X. Uh, we can't count on you to show up on time and do what you're supposed to do. And that's why we're rating and evaluating you. The 21st century notion is 
you're complete, you're great, but my job is to help you be better. That's what a coach is for. And I think that's the part where we have to be mindful of the person's emotions. Right, Athletes, right. actors, they don't perform the same way every time. Mm. That's what a coach is for. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a lot in there. Um, and people being their best, the question that I underlined, because for people you know, who buy this book, it's just if you are a coach or you're a manager wanting to develop your coaching skills, there's just a wealth of great questions. And, and as you say, you know, this, the, the whole approach is built on questions, how to use questions. But the one I really liked was what can I do for you to help you do your very best work? And that's, that, that, that little bit at the end makes such a difference, right? Because there's one thing offering to coach someone saying, what can I do for you? How can I help you? How can I go? But to, to add that in, um, to help you to do your very best work just creates an entire new context for the question. Absolutely. And it's a double-edged sword. The key is Richard is coaching Chris. Chris is a unique individual. He has his own insecurities, you know, his idiosyncrasies, you know, his gifts, his deficit. And the coach recognizing that is trying to help Chris break down barriers, remove obstacles, see things different, gain perspective, get better. And that's not the same as it is with Sally or Paul or Hector. And the key is the coach is in tune with, you know, their protege and helping that person get better and perform better. And then we're trying to get to optimal. That's what it's about. It's about great performance, breakthrough performance, the best you can do. So if the leader says, what can I help you to, you know, help uh, you do, uh, help, help you so you can perform at your best, then the leader is obligated because next time we have a conversation, well, I was telling you I need a new computer. I was telling you I need to have, you know, assignments that are written down and, and clear. Or I was telling you that, you know, I don't need, you know, this, but I need that. So it's a dual-edged sword. The leader now becomes accountable, you know, to the individual. And so, therefore, they co-perform. And the ideal saying your very best work is out of accountability for Chris as well. Because, I, Chris, I asked you what yeah. was necessary. And I'm giving it to you. So what is your excuse for not producing A-plus work? Because I'm creating the environment, giving you the tools, giving you the support. You want me to check in more often? You want me to check in less often, right? So it's a, it's a really dynamic sort of conversation, but the idea is co-performance. The leader and the subordinate, they co-perform. Yeah, well, and even then, that sort of belies the hierarchy then because you talked to, you said, yes, it's, there's leader and subordinate at one level in the formal hierarchy, but you're creating this context where they're, they're co-performing, right? Yeah, so the model, the model is, so the, the coaching model is not the 20th century model of the coach with the team or the ballet master and, you know, the whole, you know, crew and, 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 and cast. It is now kind of like the, golf coach or the tennis coach. So think about right. those folks. They hire their coaches. Right. Right. Serena Djokovic. What's the lady? I, I, I watched it. I can't remember. It's not Rana. Oh, uh, the, um, the, the, the young Brit. Rana Mitch. Uh, yeah. 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 She was second. She at the, uh, at the uh, U.S. Open. Um, they hire their coaches. They're, they're the world's best. But they have a coach. Why? Because the coach has the different skills, perspectives, and they help people get better, tweaking and refining their performance. So it's not about I know best. And, and as you know, coaches don't necessarily know the answer. But they, right. they help you come to the answer you need. They help you see things different. It's a different perspective. It's a different angle. It's helping skills to help people see their blind spots uh, suggestions about growth or just another, you know, head, you know, uh, in the conversation to try to find a solution through some synergy. So coaching is really an important, you know, part of the human existence. Everybody needs a coach. Everybody needs a friend, a spouse, a supporter. Human beings, man, we're social animals. We can't do it alone. We have to have others. And if that other is positioned the right way, it creates synergism and kind of unlimited potential because you get someone who's in your corner helping you to do better. And that's what it's about. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, no, I love that. And, and it brings to mind a, 
a comp- well, we've had a, a guy called Luke Kite on the podcast, who's um, the key chief culture officer for uh, Redico, who's the marketing firm in the UK. And they've gone all the way with that idea you just expressed. So they, there's no line management structures you know, whatsoever and in the company. And individuals get to pick their own coaches. So they're not hiring them, but they get to pick whoever they want from the organization who's put their hand up to be a coach. Uh, that individual gets to pick them and they set the terms of the coaching contract, like how often they meet and, uh, and so on. So, uh, and that, yeah, they're, they're thriving. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And there's a continuum uh, in the book. I have this kind of coaching continuum, it kind of like starting from the, the boss idea to the coach, but it's actually two more dimensions where the leader becomes essentially in the end, a sponsor, right? So right. Richard is saying, Chris is growing and he's developing, he's getting better. And not only is he, you know, coaching and supporting and guiding and advising, at some point he becomes the advocate for Chris. Hey, Chris is, Chris is great. He's doing better. That new assignment, that, that, that new team we're forming, he would be good for that, right? And the sponsor, right? A person who's saying, you know, Sally or, you know, Susie is my go-to gal. She's great. And I'm going to put her on my most important assignment. So that relationship develops over time because that person is enabling, empowering, and supporting that person's growth. Now, that's also part of that relationship we keep talking about. Relationships are important. Yeah. We'll come back to that because if it's not a, 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 a heartwarming, special, uh, personal relationship, I would dare say intimate, right, the, where we know one another, we understand one another, we trust one another. You know, I appreciate your, uh, I looked at one of your, one of your uh, uh, kind of podcasts or, or you talked about the scaffolding of trust. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yes, yes, yeah. Yeah. So I might take that and juxtapose that against the continuum of support because I think that is really the idea because we're co-performing here, right? Yeah. So I have yeah. a coach and the coach has my back and we're working together and we can only get as good as the two of us are giving. Right. Because you can't get what you don't give. And so we're working together and I'm going out on a limb. I'm thinking about this crazy idea. And what do you think? And if you're supportive, then I'm going to take that next you know, step or, or make a leap of faith or whatever. Going back to the professor or the teacher or supporter, when you're a young person who sees something in you that you mm. don't see yet. Right. You may yeah. not see it. You, you can do it. We, you know, I mean, for example, you know, I grew up a working class kid and I can remember being in college and, you know, a couple of professors and the city manager from the city was an adjunct professor teaching a course. And and it was talking about going to law school. And I'm thinking like law school. I mean, I, I'm not really sure how you get to law school. Right. Because I'm a first generation kid. Didn't even know. But then someone says hey, you can do it. Really? Like, really? And then, and, then, and then the professor said, you know, get a doctor. Like, what? Like, really? Like me? Like, I mean, I don't understand. Are you talking about the same person I'm thinking about? That person raises your aspirations. <laughs> right, 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 right. They're supporting you. But they don't have to. So that's why that yeah. relationship matters. And I love the idea that you get to pick your own coach. Yeah. Yeah, the relationship is is everything, isn't it? And it's it's that idea of the... So those individuals you've just mentioned, they saw in something in you beyond what you could even see at that moment right so they're looking for a possibility in you beyond what you can potentially even see yourself and then talk and speaking into that you know that and i think that's you know that's you you allude to that in the question you know how can i help you do your very best work but that sort of points that same idea as i'm I'm looking beyond that individual than their even their current aspirations potentially right and they hold you accountable Let's not, yeah. let's, let's be honest about it. Coaches aren't always nice. Sometimes yeah. they give you hard feedback. They, they say, Chris or Richard, you have to work harder. If you plan to do this, you have to work hard. Or you're giving me 95%. You're giving me 85%. I know you could do better, right? That's the teacher that you really loved and hated in high school, right? Where, you know, they're like, you know, they call you to their, to their thing and you got a B plus, you got an A minus. And they ask you this question. Is this your best work? Yeah. Ooh. And you know it's not because, you know, you, it's sloppy. You turn it in late or, you you know, last minute, you didn't try as hard. And, and those people kind of give you a moment of reckoning, right? Yeah. And sometimes they just say, oh, this is not good enough. Do it over, right? I mean, so 
That's the beauty of the other. And that relationship matters because uh, the feedback from different people uh, is received differently. I think one of the most important parts that I discovered in this whole process of performance management was that the relationship matters. And the literature is really empty, Richard, on this. Because mm. all of the all of the resources on performance management says the leader is going to provide feedback and evaluate people, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't say that feedback given from Chris and, 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 and Richard to Hector is going to be received differently. They mm. don't say that at all in the literature. But it's true because anybody with two friends, two siblings, you know, or two coworkers know that the same information delivered the same way, the exact same time from two different people is received completely different and is based upon the previous relationship. Yeah, Trust is a huge part of that because yeah. I can't give you really poignant, negative, critical feedback that's designed to open your eyes and, and put you on the right path if we have a negative relationship because then it's the messenger, you know, not the message that's going to be received. Richard has always yeah. been critical of me. You know, he's yeah. never like me. You know, it's because of the color of my skin. You know, it's because of, you know, I said something about, you know, something way back when, or he likes Sally and not me. It's all kinds of other things because of the relationship matters. Yeah. And so the coach has to develop a relationship to allow the environment to exist for real feedback to be exchanged. And if we don't get to that level of trust where we can say what needs to be said, then we really don't have much. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's such an important, such an important point. And I'm, I'm also reflecting on a podcast I heard of a guy called, um, Vusi, uh, Tim, Tim Bekwai, or he's a, like a South African guy. Um, his dad was shot when he was 14. Like he comes from this, you know, really, you know, difficult background. And he became like, he was world champion public speaker. He's now got a mm. successful business and a venture investing firm and all the rest of it. And, and he's talking about his childhood and his relationship with his mother. And his mother was his coach, right? And oh. she would say, to, he'd come back and he'd get like a B on his homework. And, and she'd be like, yeah, but where's your A? Or he'd come back and he'd come second in his public speaking competition. Why didn't you win it? And like, and he said, like, that could sound like I had this really awful mother, right? Who was right. just like constantly beating me up and like abusive, right? And he's like, but it's not, it really wasn't that. Because when my mother's asking me that question, and this is back to the relationship, she's not saying it to shame me or beat me up or make me feel bad. It's because she sees in me this yes. possibility that I am a world champion public speaker or I am a straight A, a student. And she's, yes. she's got that in her head. And she's like, I want you to get there. That's the whole context. That's the relationship into, you know, the context of her asking the question. And that seems to be so important, you know, more, much more important than the phrasing of the question itself or even which question you ask, right? Right. The intent of the question and the relationship is more important than the actual question. Because the question is really just a, a prompt, a tickler to get the conversation going, to get the reflection and the thought processes, you know, kind of going. Right. And, 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 I, and, I, and I appreciate the, the, the perspective where the psychologists say to your kids, don't reward them for getting A's. Reward them for the effort it took for them to get A's. Mm. It's that same kind of idea. I see something in you and it's not it's not that you're gifted is you worked hard for that. Now, you might be smart also, but if you're rewarding the right kind of behavior, it causes the reflection you know, the efforts, the behaviors and the things that will produce sustainable success. And so I really like that sort of perspective. So mother asking the prompting questions and I'm, and I'm assuming the prompting questions were tailor made for him. I have three daughters mm -hmm. and, and, you know, one's a women's uh, uh, basketball coach. She is way more competitive than most people I've ever met. And I have to tell her often relax is just people putting the ball through a little hoop is really not that serious. Right. <laughs> My middle daughter, right. She, the lowest grade she's ever made is a 92. And that comes with full on tears and anxiety. She's like her mother, right. Who made only two B's between undergraduate and a doctorate. Didn't get it from her father. The youngest one is like, I got an A, 
what's your problem? Like, I don't even want to talk about it, right? Because she, she, you know, she just has a different orientation to the world. So the feedback given to the three individuals, fundamentally different. No criticism for the middle one, right? Asking the youngest one, did you do your best? Which is most often, right? Because, you know, just different. Every person is motivated different. And that's why that relationship matters. and, And the coach has to adjust to her performers, because the performance needs something and the coach can provide some of that. That's the whole why we all need uh, somebody who's on our team, in our corner, having our back and providing us with support. Yeah. Reminds me to talk about the, the mental health, the support, the consoling, the counseling part of coaching, where not every, not every day is a good day. And sometimes we don't feel well, you know, our perspective is off. And, you know, in COVID times and in recent times and other times, you just need someone to give you a kind word. And the coach needs to know when to kick someone in the butt or, you know, pat them on the back. And sometimes just to say, just stay in the game. Don't, don't give up. You don't have to do your best, but just stay in the game. So that dynamic part is there is the coach knows her performers and, and has to tweak what that is to the performer to help them unleash their own potential. Right. Right. Well, yeah, let, let's dwell on that a little bit because in the book, and this was like one of the moments in the book, I was like, mm, I'm not, you know, I, I sort of had a question in my mind because you talk about this question of, of how are you? Um, but to put it at the end of the conversation, because of this concern that, um, you know, you might go down too many, these, these are my words, rabbit holes, your know, personal rabbit okay. holes. And, yeah. and I was thinking, well, yeah, but surely sometimes actually you want to put that at the top of the conversation because you want, you can sense that person's off or they, they've come and they look glum. You want to like inquire a bit and get and, and help them deal with whatever they're dealing with before you get on into any performance conversation. So, uh, yeah, I'm just interested in your perspective yeah. there. Yeah. So two, two, two parts of a whole. So first, you know, the book offers a series of questions forms questions approach has seven questions that are designed to address all of the major issues that come about, you know, with performance management, say that's 15 or 16 different ones. These questions are designed to address those. The other part, the performance conversations process is about a a series of brief structured conversations about the things that matter most. So it's a series uh, planned scheduled events that allows for follow-up and accountability because we're going to meet again. Uh, They're brief, structured, 20 to 30 minutes. They're conversations, two-way dialogue, exchange of information, and we're talking about the things that matter most. The things that matter most are going to ebb and flow over time. Sometimes it's goals. Sometimes it's actual performance. Sometimes it's relationships. It could be a variety of things, but brief, structured conversations about the things that matter most. So if you put it in context there, we have a relationship. We've built rapport, and this is just one way station along the way. Now, asking those seven questions, the last one is, how are you? Which we want to start with the first, you know, that first. Experience says, sometimes if you ask that question, it takes 20 to 30 minutes to finish it because of life and circumstances. So you never really get to the matter at hand. Here's the example. If a person is struggling with something at home, uh, COVID is, you know, has them haggard. And if you allow people to fully express themselves, um, you've missed the appointed meeting time. If you schedule it at the end, it tends to fill the available time that's remaining. And or you can decide to continue on if you have the flexibility to continue that conversation. So a lot of that, I can't find that in the literature, but it's based upon experience. Also, if you ask, how are you from the perspective of just opening, you know, kind of statement and you're going to actually listen. A person could give you some negative information or they can give some really positive information and that can overshadow the whole purpose of the meeting and you may not not even have a meeting. So, for example, a a lady might say, I'm pregnant. All right. So now you're planning to talk about the projects here. Okay, well, this is kind of moot because your life is about to change and your work is about to change. And some of this just falls off the list. Or it could be really negative. I'm I'm getting divorced. Mm. Right? And so now it's like, you actually want to talk about work when this person's life is about to change? It's like, you know, it's like, uh, 
okay, this thing's menial. I mean, yep. So that's why you don't ask at the beginning. Now, if you don't know the person, you don't have a rapport with the person skipping to the end, then that makes more sense. But you're talking about one in a series of conversations, you know, call it every other month or once a quarter, that person has a relationship with you. So experience says that. Now, you've had a productive meeting and you're planning things out, everything's good. And then you say, uh, how are you? And the person says, I'm getting a divorce. You could, you know, then you could focus on that very important issue and say, well, that's important. Uh, you know, let me know how I can help you. Uh, you have some things to do and that may be healthy to have work as a distraction. The point is that you have somewhere to adjust from. Just asking earlier, sometimes it just derails things. And again, it's not in the literature. It just comes from experience because I've been doing these since around 2002 uh, with, with, with staff in all different kind of places and lots of clients and organizations that have used the method over time. That's just something the wisdom of experience says that can take you away. And of course, you can ask them in, in, in an order you want, but that's a suggestion for, for the order based upon a variety of factors. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. But I guess you've, you've, you've also said you can ask them in, in any order. And I get my intuition would tell me I'm, I might get a fee, a certain sense that, you know, this guy's ready to go or this woman's ready. Let's, let's just hit it. And, and as you say, get into like the productive and a goal, goal oriented conversation. But if I'm noticing certain signals and they seem a bit off, I, you know, my inclination might then be is to, is to start with, uh, Hey, you know, is there anything on your mind? Is there something going on? Is there anything you want to talk about? Just, just purely based on intuition is, does that make yeah, sense? Absolutely. And, Sometimes it's good to ask, add two words, work-related, if you want to focus. Right. Because as you know, you know, I'm an introvert. I got some extroverted colleagues that, man, they, they will take up the entire time talking about grandkids and other things if you don't keep the conversation focused, right? So, you know, you know uh, what's going on in your work life? Not what's going on. <laughs> because I want to keep it focused. Because this is a performance improvement conversation. The performance conversations method is about performance improvement. It's not about performance management. It's about coaching, helping people uh, get better, perform better, and feel better about their work. So this is a coaching conversation. We can talk about the neighbors and, you know, the golf outing and all these other things going on in life at some other time. But this is a coaching conversation. Sure, but... And but I get isn't there still a, a distinction there because I, like I get it there'll be certain you know topics that just have no relationship to performance but if 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 the if these are topics or themes that are affecting mental health or physical health or you know aspects that might be affecting the human then yes. don't we want to flush those out sooner rather than later like what you know where does that judgment come in as to Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, uh, you, you've given the answer. You want to flesh those out. The question is when, where, and how. Mm. Uh, you know, I just posit that start that conversation after you've taken care of business. Now, some of it's going to come out organically in the conversation. The first three questions are what's going well, you know, and how we replicate it. Second question is what's not going well and how might we adjust. And then third, what else is going on in your work life? A person could say, uh, well, work is going OK, but, I, I, you know, I'm not spending as much time on tasks because I'm distracted because I'm having marital problems or I'm having financial problems or, you know, work. You know, I'm not as engaged in my work because it seems pretty rote. You know, I've been doing this a while. Yeah. And I'm thinking about new challenges and opportunities. So all of that might come out earlier in the conversation, you kind of go with it because it's a conversation about the things that matter most right now because we're having a series of conversations. And if that's top of mind, it's likely to come up earlier. So it's organic. The seven questions are really just prompts and structure because without the prompts and structure, the conversation can go in 110 different ways. And we want to make sure that it's focused on performance improvement. Yeah. Coaching, yeah. getting better. So. Yeah. And I think it's also what I, I guess what's also great about it is for people who are new to coaching and, you know, maybe, maybe they're able to rely less on their intuition because they're in the early stages of this, then giving them this, this structure. Um, yeah, re it really helps. And these are, these are questions that have served the test of time, right? These are, yes. 
and these are ones that you've personally developed from your own experience, or is this something you've sort of collated from the literature? Where, how did you get it cut, arrive at these oh, seven? It's, it's, it's both. It's both mostly from the literature uh, and a lot from experience and refinement over time. And of course, as, as the book notes, um, these are suggestions. And if you don't have questions, if you don't have uh, a, a way of working already, use the question and then refine them over time. Or you can start with those questions and, and then develop your original, uh, you know, original questions. Also, the index obviously has dozens of questions and questions for the employee to mm-hmm. ask the manager also, because it's the idea of having a conversation, a two way dialogue about uh, what's most uh, important that's going on at work. And so th- these are just prompts. Some organizations, a friend of mine, he's like a vice president of a company. They, they do sales. He wants to talk about sales, leads and patronage. Right. He's like, hey, man, I got three questions. That's all I really want to talk about. You know, what are you selling? What's possible? And, you know, who else is buying again? And what do we what have we learned from that? But so that's his focus. So that's his what's going well, what's not going well, what else is going on sort of intro. And then the other things come. But the key is coaching is pretty much as close as we're likely to get to the holy grail of management. Because questions are really integral to everything that happens in the human experience. So you've talked about your boys being young boys with four or five years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guarantee you they ask you a hundred questions a day because that's how they learn <laughs> yes. at that age. Why is this? What is this? What are, they're learning. That's how humans learn. Um, doctors, you go to the doctor, what happens? They diagnose you by asking you a few questions. Police officers, how do they gather facts? Ask a few questions. Lawyers interrogate witnesses with questions. Counselors, journalists, universities. It's the scientific method. is form a researchable question and go seek observation experiment to determine whether that question is accurate or not. The human existence is around questions. And every one of us managers, we ask questions in this structured scenario is called an interview. We've spent years refining that process. Shouldn't we also use questions to determine if a person has performed (laughs) adequately? Questions. Isn't that that funny that we we put so much focus on that one meeting at the start of their career and then we don't do it again? (laughs) Of course we do, but we don't. You're absolutely right. We don't devise a sort of... The the fact is those are ritualized, you know, customs that we develop, you know, specifically... For, for recruiting somebody, yeah, of course it makes sense. For, for really important moments, right? When we're, when we're trying to work out whether there's a fit between this person and the organization. Yeah, why not Absolutely. extend that practice to, to everything else? <laughs> yes. And, and we've all had this experience, and certainly as a manager and as, a, as an employee, of the person with a lot of experience asking you the one question that you don't know the answer to, right? You've prepared yourself you got the report done. You've done all this great work and you hand it in. And the person says, oh, this is good stuff. Whatever. Uh, did you? <sighs> Didn't get that one. Right. Because asking the question is so important because they have experiences that lead them to kind of uh, be aware of a lot of stuff. So asking questions is one of the most important management tools. I mean, even if it's just how are things going? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And and I get that. And you get that feeling as a coach, don't you, when you've asked a killer. It's like it's like, you know, scoring a goal in soccer or or, or dunking the ball in but you know, you just have that meaning and you just know you've asked the right question at the right moment and you get that buzz. And I think that's like something to develop joy, you know, a jo- joy from, right? In one's role as a coach. That's something I've I've found. And you don't want to give the person the answer. You want yeah. to empower them. Sometimes asking, you know, rhetorical questions such as, what haven't you considered? Yeah. Then that person stops and starts to think, hmm, right? So they can own the process of diagnosing the work, the challenges, the problems, and coming up with solutions. Yeah. And I see that as my evolution as a coach as well, is that sometimes I'll notice when I just just stated an assumption about something they were experiencing or, or, or a track they ought to go down. 
And that's, that's for me, like the growth for me as a coach is noticing, ah, that would have been much better if I just asked the question there and let them tell me the answer rather than assuming it. And that's, that for me is like the, the, the performance edge for me as a coach. Absolutely. That's the empowerment part. And that's what makes coaching so beautiful. Uh, I sometimes use a scenario of uh, you're working with a NASA scientist and there's, you know, and they haven't made any meaningful progress in six months. They're stuck. And could you help? Because the book talks about feedback and feed forward. Oh, yeah. Questioning inquiry is a feed forward technique of helping people imagine solutions to challenges and opportunities. And it helps to kind of break through. And that's the coaching perspective where the coach enables and empowers. Uh, you know, you don't want to give a person the answer. That's as soon as you even know what the answer is. The question is, how do you enable them and prepare them to get to the answer? And asking, you know, kind of the leading questions or questions that uh, allow them to reflect and gain perspective is, uh, is is kind of magical, right? So, for example, it's like, do you think this problem is unsolvable? <laughs> That's great. And a person yeah. who wants to give up, it was like, yeah, I mean, I've tried everything or whatever. Uh, have you tried everything? I've tried everything. So what have you tried? What else? By the time you get to five or six, they're like, well, okay, I haven't tried everything, right? right? <laughs> or, no, this isn't unsolvable. This is my life's work. This is important to me. And really what they just need was some encouragement. Yeah. They didn't need any solution. They just need encouragement to continue the fight. So coaching, I think, is a magical thing. And as you said, you know, sometimes it's your spouse, it's your, it's your family member, it's a friend, it's an older colleague, it's a, it's a buddy or, you know, mate. Uh, we just need others. That's a part of where the human enterprise works. And others help to bring out the best enough in us. And we just formalize it, obviously, in a workplace setting with the coaching uh, sort of framework. Yeah. Yeah, and that point about others I love, and your, your, your question six, which I also underlined and love, was, you know, how are your professional relationships going? So then you're not just talking about the coach-coachee, you're getting into, you know, and we know a lot of the mental health research now that's emerging is talking about this need for connection uh, in our lives and that, you know, can, we can predict depression by the number of co connections or otherwise in someone's life, and that seems like such Absolutely. an important one. Gallup. The 12 question gap thing about, you know, engagement and three of the questions are related to relationships. Relationship one, supervisor. And has anyone given you positive feedback recently? And do you have a friend at work? Do you have a best friend? Right. At work? Because if you don't like the mates, the people you work with, you're not going to do your very best work. That's back to that discretionary effort. It's about others. I mean, it's Aristotle. We want to belong. I mean, you know, this mm. basic human mm. issue with mm. social beings and, as you said, mental health and, and depression and, and homelessness. I, I remember going to a session uh, recently uh, and a professional said people become homeless not when they run out of money. It's when they run out of relationships. <laughs> right. Yeah. Really yeah, nice line. Yeah, that's right? true. Does someone care about you? You know, and uh, um, longevity in life, people who are single, you know, tend to live less long because just having someone else who wants you to get out of bed in the morning is important. Just having relationships. So whether you're in a, 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 a nursing facility or you're, you're, you're single or married, doesn't matter. You have to have relationships with others. That's how human beings thrive. Yeah, I remember that study that they did in New York of two um, Italian-American communities, and they couldn't figure out by one, why one of the communities was living much longer than the other one. And they yeah. looked at the food, and they read the same food. It was like it wasn't done. They, they, they had similar socioeconomics, and it was this one community just ate lunch together a lot more often than the other one that, that wow. preserved that Italian way of, you know, style of, yeah. you know, ensemble eating. And, uh, yeah, they lived longer as a result. Yeah. yeah. Family. Family, relationships, connections with human beings, absolutely. All right. So I'm going to ask you a question now, like on another question. Is, is there a question that you might have expected me to ask that I haven't asked you know, about your work or about the book? Um, no, I think we've had a, a nice uh, flowing conversation. But uh, the, the one thing that I, I would want to um, uh, add is that intent. Uh, the, the whole idea of performance 
uh, has two components, right? It's the actual performance and it's the actual human element. And if people as a coach don't really care, uh, they're only concerned about the performer, then they miss the person. So the intent really matters because you can't fake it, right? You know when someone likes you or not. You know that they care or not. And the manager who assumes they can come in, rotely ask questions, have a, you know, have a uh, arm's length relationship with people and expect them to perform at their best, I think is deluding themselves. So just the whole idea, if you take yourself as a leader and assume your role is to help people get better, perform better and feel better mm. is important. People have humans are emotional beings. Yeah. And if you don't want to be that person who is the older brother, sister kind of helper, coach sort of person, then you probably shouldn't be in a leadership role because, you know, relationships matter, emotions matter. And Chris has to earnestly want to help Richard get better. When Chris is not performing, you know, well, or anyone's not performing well, they often feel abandoned. Someone's holding me accountable. They're trying to mark me out of the organization. And, you know, they really just want to get somebody else. They don't really care about Chris and how Chris feels. And, and if he, you know, if, if, if Chris can get better, if you don't believe in others and want them to, to get better and be better, then you really aren't fully exercising the responsibilities of what a coach or a leader or manager is for. Our whole job is to help other people be better. If we don't help others be better, then we're just unnecessary overhead, right? Because- Well, as, as we, leaders and managers. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So, because, you know, because there's quite a lot of research that says that often the star performance make awful bosses, right? That's that, in fact, yeah, I'd, I'd see something. Whereas if you make, I think statistically speaking, if you make the star sales performer in a team, the sales manager, the whole performance of the team goes down, statistically speaking, right? So, yes. Yes, their expectations and, and understanding of what it takes to be great, you know, becomes personalized. And I understand that their way is not the way. Their way is to help others find their own way. And that's why the perspective needs to shift, right? It's like Michael Jordan, right? I mean, you know, he's been terrible as a talent developer. He can't identify talent, you know, for anything on any of you know, the team he bought, right? Because his perspective is different. He's an outlier. The question is, no, yeah. how do you identify what's great in others and develop that? It's not a replicating oneself. And, and so I think that's part of that whole dynamic that, that, that you speak about. Yeah. yeah and, and, and so important for, I think, for firms to understand is that you, the, the people who make good managers and leaders have these qualities, right? They, they really do care what's going on inside somebody else. And they really do have the ability to see something a possibility beyond what that individual might see. Uh, and if they haven't got that, either they need to be you know, developed into that or not yes. given those roles, right? Yeah, yeah. But given more framework and to help identify what, what the, the, the challenges uh, are is important. To say you're a coach, not a boss. Because I mean, as I was dealing with an organization recently and the, and the leader was uh, vice president of a multifunctional unit and saying, well, how do you you know, do appraisals and evaluations of people. You don't really know what they do. I said, well, your job is not to evaluate their work. Your job is to be a coach. Your job is to help them own their work, identify their work and the solutions and help them get better at it. So if you come in being a know-it-all, I mean, they're, they're going to turn you off, right? You need to be figuring out how to enable them, give them the right tools, environment, support, equipment, methods, and utilize their talents and their gifts in the problem-solving equation, right? What is your perspective? Well, you know, how, how do you think, you know, this should work? What do you think we can do collectively to make this better? It's the coaching perspective. It's not like, oh, this is good or bad, or I know this. No, that's the wrong, that's a 20th century orientation. Work is so dynamic. And by and large, we're talking about professional knowledge workers. The, the old model was designed for labor, it's the 21st century. It's an information economy. People know what to do. The question is, can they be successful here and in this environment on this team with you know, these challenges and these opportunities? 
How do we work within that framework of enabling people and empowering people and supporting people and coaching people and, and cheering them on? That's is the role. That is the role of the 21st century. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, supremely well put. And uh, yeah, and that, that need to let go of evaluation, I think, you know, so important. That's almost like the first step, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just reminds me of Gary Hamill in one of his recent books came up with this, this idea of the recovering bureaucrat, right? It's like, oh, yes. Humanocracy. Yeah, like, I read that. Yeah. I yeah. Like that. step. It's like, step. I, I love that idea of, having organizations as good as the people inside of them, right? Is how do we yeah. unleash human potential? And we've conceived of things, you know, in a kind of skewed way, and we need to let go of some of the old uh, way of thinking. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so step one, perhaps, of the credo for, uh, for, for recovering bureaucrats is to, you know, let, let go of the need to evaluate. There we go. <laughs> uh, right. Absolutely. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, wonderful conversation, great book. And for anybody out there who's yeah interested in this topic, developing their coaching skill, yeah, this 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 could serve as a as a great manual. There's there's so many great questions. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, so we'll Thank put a, we'll put a description to the yeah sorry a link to the to the book in the description. Is there anywhere else you you might send people? Yeah, performanceconversations.com. You know, is, right. is my website and has a whole lot of training courses and materials and information there. So it's a go-to source. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. Well, thank you once again for your time. Uh, enjoy the rest of rest of your day. Uh, it's been an honor. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.